Wow, that was quick. This is a man who clearly wants his tea. There you go. Did you just want the tea or did you have a question? <laughs> Me? I don't know. I, earlier this year, I was talking with a friend and I said, yeah, I'm already working out what I'm going to do next time I quit my job. It's funny, actually, on this picture, everyone says, oh, you look so happy. Of course I looked happy. I had left a city where I was miserable. I had quit my job. I had gone back to Europe. I was walking across Spain and nobody knew where I was. Of course I was going to be happy. <laughs> the, uh, the couple that I've got in mind, there's the Pacific Northwest Trail, and we actually had a Franciscan friar stay at our house who was walking all of the California missions because they are meant to be a day's walk apart. So, I don't know, check back with me in a year. You might find me on the side of the road walking towards San Francisco. Let me tell you a story. Um, so on day one, I left at 7 a.m. because I had to get a, you, you take this, it's called the credential. It's like a passport that they stamp along the way to make sure you didn't cheat. Although technically, you can just do the last 100 kilometers and not actually start in France or Portugal or somewhere else. We judged people who did that. But I left at 7 a.m. and I was actually catching up with some friends who just happened to be on the Camino at that time. It was my old housemate. He was originally going to be doing the Camino. He put the idea in my head, first of all. Then he was going to get married and timescales changed. And then about two weeks before, he says, oh, I'm actually going to go do the Camino. And it's like, I will be starting that same day. So he and his father had left at the crack of dawn. And so I was trying to catch up with them. And I eventually did, and we started walking through the Pyrenees, and the sky was just beautiful. It was gorgeous, sunny, did not last for long. Around lunchtime, the clouds came in, and it just started bucketing it. And people die on the Pyrenees. Every year, people die on the Camino, and usually in that spot. So we, we arrived in Spain like drowned rats, and... I did have that first moment of, what am I doing? And then, particularly the following morning when I woke up, because I didn't even bother having a shower, I was just so tired, I just crawled into bed and just waited for blissful sleep to roll over me. And I woke up the following morning, because everybody was packing, getting ready to go, and I just stared at the ceiling, thinking, I've got about 35 more days of this. <laughs> and it was funny, because as you're walking along, people would often ask, is this your first time walking the Camino? I would laugh in their face. I'm not doing this again. <laughs> but actually, after about a week, you start thinking, maybe. By week two, it's like, probably. By week three, it's like, oh yeah, I'm definitely doing this again. So you get through it. Anyone else? Oh, oh, sorry. Uh, People, would, people die on the Camino. It's very often that they just start walking and they've done no preparation. Because the Camino takes so long to do, you often have people who reach retirement and then say, right, now I have time to go and do the Camino. And not everybody prepares for it. You should do some preparation. And so, and that first day is a baptism by fire. It's like this. <laughs> it's really steep the entire day. And what often happens is because the weather is so terrible, um, around the Pyrenees, 
people can just get off the path and then they fall over and they either break something or go into shock. Somebody else has to ask another question. That's no way I can end on <laughs> talking about people dying. Yes, at the back. I'm not quite sure what I would have told you. I think I would have said I definitely didn't believe what Catholics believed. But honestly, I didn't really know. It was actually funny. The first time I went to a communion service, they call it the Lord's Supper, at um, an evangelical church, I was actually horrified with how informal everything seemed to be. People were just eating bread and wine and just chatting. And something in me just went, oh, this is strange. No, this isn't right. So... I thought it was important, but I don't think I could have really have told you how important. And even to this day, I'm not entirely sure how I managed to get through so much Catholic schooling and not quite understand the Eucharist, or at least understand who I was receiving. And it was something that happened over time as I started reading, uh, and particularly when I read the early church fathers. My favorite church father is Ignatius of Antioch. He wrote seven letters in about 107 AD. And I remember the moment when I was reading it and he was talking about the docetists. The docetists didn't believe that Jesus actually had a body. They just thought he was this phantom. And Ignatius says that they don't come and join our Eucharist because they do not confess that the Eucharist is the flesh which was nailed to the cross and which the Father, in his goodness, raised from the dead. 107 AD. I was floored. And then I heard some really good presentations on John 6, particularly by Scott Hahn, and reaching the conclusion that no, Jesus meant what he said and said what he meant. Yeah. Generally, people will say something along the lines of, well, Jesus used hyperbole all the time. He said, I am the door, but we don't think he's really a door. So when he's talking in John 6, he's just using hyperbole. That, of course, kind of falls short. There's problems with trying to say that. Because if you're going to say that, then that means that Jesus let people walk away from him, from his ministry, because of a misunderstanding. Because the people that were listening to him very clearly understood that, no, this guy is saying what he means, and he means what he says, that we actually have to eat his flesh and we have to drink his blood. And you have to say that. And also, the other thing is, when you read through John 6, you see Jesus escalating the situation. Very rarely in the Gospels does Jesus try to calm people down. He just tries to irritate them more. <laughs> so he says, you must eat my flesh, you must drink my blood. And then he, he, he ups the verbs that he's using. He literally uses the verb to chew. You must gnaw on my flesh. And then he says, my flesh is real food. My blood is real drink. And I remember thinking to myself, well, if he, if he actually did mean that, what language could he possibly use that would be more extreme than that? And particularly when you remember that a year later, they're gathering in Jerusalem, and he takes the bread and he takes the wine and says, this is my body, this is my blood. And I wonder if the apostles were thinking back to the previous year and going, oh, this is what he meant. When I was wandering away from the Catholic Church, I did ask some questions, but I typically didn't get great answers. But more often than not, if I'm honest, I just didn't even ask the questions. I just reached the conclusion that, no, this is silly. Let's just move on. 
And it was actually in my return, I kept finding that there were good answers. While I was still part of a Protestant congregation, in Bible study, they called me the vicar. It was part of an Anglican church. And when they would ask questions, I would go to Catholic sources for the answers and then, you know, pass the answers off as my own. <laughs> well, I didn't want to tell them where, where it was coming from. But it was actually then that I found that I had been far better formed than I actually really realized. I remember one member of our small group, he was, he was a newborn. He had only been a Christian for a few months. And just one point in small group, he said, what does it all mean? It's like, what do you mean? He says, well, why are we here? And in my little head, my catechism went off. Who made you? God made me. Why did God make you? God made me to know him, love him, serve him in this world, and be happy with him forever and the next. Now, I didn't quite use those words. I translated it. But I started realizing that actually I had been given, given far more of the faith than I really realized. And that's one of the things I always try and do when I speak to Catholics is to help them realize the amount that they have actually received. That when they go to Mass, they hear far more scripture than I ever heard in any Protestant congregation. And almost every word and phrase in Mass is either an explicit quotation of scripture or an allusion to it. We're far better formed than we think, and we're far better taught than we think if we have eyes to see and if we have ears to hear. Anything else? Yes. I always tell girls, never settle. <laughs> uh, no, it is kind of a perennial question. And it was actually, this is the hardest talk I've ever had to prepare because I actually had to think and feel. Um, I did think about that question. I think yes and no. When Augustine says, you made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts wander restless until we rest in you, part of that resting happens here and now. When you come to Christ, your soul does rest in him. But it's still pointing forward. All the things in this earth, even the sacraments we receive, they're pointing towards a heavenly reality, which is now but not yet. That one day we will come to heaven, and that will be the fulfillment of everything. So in some sense, you're inevitably going to be a little restless. Even if you have the most fulfilled life, if you have the best job, the best spouse, the best friends. I hate you if you have all of those things, but anyway. <laughs> but even if you have these best things, this is the entire point that Lewis is making. There'll still be something missing because we can't stuff creatures into our heart to try and fill a hole that is God-sized. So I think that there is rest. You know, when you are secure in your knowledge of who you are and whose you are, then yes, there is rest there. But at the same time, you're still even now meant for more. This is the theological virtue of hope pointing us towards heaven. This side of the second coming, I expect to still be a little restless. There was one other? I'll give you the short answer. Well, not too short, because I love the Byzantine Church, so I want to talk about it a little bit. Uh, so for those of you who aren't familiar, in the Catholic Church, there are a number of different churches, a number of different liturgical rites as well. So I go to a Byzantine Catholic Church. 
So we're still Catholic, we still celebrate the Eucharist, we're still in communion with the Pope in Rome, but we express our theology a little differently. And our celebration of what you call the Mass, the liturgy of the Eucharist, is also a little different. It comes from a different time, a different place, and it's absolutely beautiful. And whenever I talk, I always encourage those who are here to uh, come and visit a Byzantine parish. Come and, please come and visit my parish if you've never been. Because I think being able to see East and West, you get to see the full breadth and beauty and diversity within the Catholic Church. You know, it's not a stale uniformity. And our, our liturgy is different in lots of ways. We have icons rather than statues. We sing everything, literally only the, the homily and one little prayer before communion is said. Everything else, all of the readings are chanted. Um, our incense has bells on it. It's, it's just beautiful. But basically how I found it was I had been visiting my, well, it was actually when I moved to London. Because of my time in Protestant circles, I had a lot of Protestant friends. And so when I moved to London, people would invite me to their church. So I would go to Mass, and then I would go and visit their church. And by this point, I was finally behaving myself, and on the occasions when there was something akin to Holy Communion being celebrated, I wouldn't partake. And that made me really sad. But I still enjoyed going and visiting some of these churches to see what their liturgy, even if they didn't call it liturgy, to see what it said, what it said about how they viewed themselves, how they viewed God, and how they viewed the relationship between the two. And it was one evening when I was coming back from one of these churches, my brain tried to tell me something, that there was this other part of the Catholic Church that was still Catholic, I could still receive the Eucharist, but their liturgy was very different. And so some very vague Googling later, Google told me that what my brain was trying to tell me about was the Eastern churches. So since I was in London at the time, we have a large immigrant population. So I got to visit the Melkites, the Maronites, and the Ukrainians. And I saw the liturgy all in Ukrainian. And it's funny, if you've ever been to Mass when you can't understand the language, you have to look at the body language of the Mass to find out what's going on. And then when I came to America, I was asked to do music in one parish, lead a young adult group in another. And it wasn't until, I think, a couple of years later, I, I had the summers off because I worked with Life Team. And they didn't have mass during the summer. So I just, I wonder if that Eastern Church stuff is over here as well. And that was when I walked into my, what is now my parish, Holy Angels. And I walked in there and it's wall-to-wall -wall icons. I walked in, it's, when people told me about falling in love with a girl or a guy they've met, I, I, after, after that experience, I knew what they meant. It's like, I know exactly what you mean. It was just like when I first walked into a Byzantine church. And so after a little while, I really wanted just to have one parish and not be split in so many ways. And I knew where my heart was. It was, it was in the East. A couple of announcements I did want to make. Firstly, if you want to listen to this talk again or any of the talks that we've had at Theology on Tap, uh, you can check out the Diocesan podcast feed. Just wherever you search for podcasts, just type in San Diego Theology on Tap and you should find it. And also, if you want to go further into the theme of restlessness, there is a free emphasis on free, uh, one-day retreat. Uh, I'm part of the core team. I'm not going to be speaking, so you don't have to deal with that. But on April 14th at St. Catherine Labore, you should see flyers around. Registration just opened. So if you want to delve a little bit more into St. Augustine and his restless heart, please come to that retreat. We're going to have adoration, confession, mass, 
and we've got some really great speakers booked. <laughs> okay, so uh, who here listens to Pints with Aquinas or listen to Matt Frad? Okay, that's Australian. It was the longest running joke that would never die. When I first moved to the States, I got to meet some people and it was great, build up a little community. I then went back to England. And then when I returned, you know, the triumphal return when I finally had a long-term visa, I was really busy the first week just to reconnect with everybody. And I went to a party in Old Town, and this girl, very, now a very close friend, Joy, uh, she said, oh, I love your accent. Is that Australian? It's like, no, my name's David. I'm from England. I just moved here. Oh, great. About a week later, we were at another event, and I met her again. She did not remember me. Hi, my name's Joy. I really love your accent. Are you from Australia? No, uh, my name is David, I'm from England, uh, I've just moved here. Oh, that's great. Then we went to a prayer event at somebody's house. She was there again and had forgotten me again. Am I really that forgettable? <laughs> Hi, my name's Joy, I really love your accent. Are you from Australia? And I went, no. <laughs> Joy, we've had this conversation now three times. My name is David, I am from England. <laughs> and when Joy tells the story, she went, didn't understand why he was shouting at me. So I like to give this, this little tip to Americans because people love trying to guess where my accent is from. And unfortunately, they very often guess Australia. When, when somebody's speaking in Australian, they tend to go up at the end of every sentence, like they're always asking a question. That's, that's <laughs> it, it's, it's really kind of annoying. And if you listen to Pints with Aquinas, all, this is all you're going to hear now. And the other thing to look out for is with the vowels. When there's a diphthong, when you've got a couple of vowels together, Australians just go wild. So I would say something is great. An Australian would say, it's great. <laughs> so that's what you've got to look out for. And if you, think, if you think they're from England, just say the UK. It's much safer, because that way you've covered England, Ireland, Scotland, and Wales. Every now and again, people try and get really clever. It's like, I think you're Welsh. It's like, oh, you really went, tried, you really tried to impress me. <laughs> and it did not work. Okay. We done? <laughs>